Amen. You may all be seated. <clears throat> Welcome everyone uh, once again to our uh, Sabbath worship together. Um, it's been a strange Sunday, um, strange because of what has been happening this week, but also this uh, morning has been strange for us, those of us who are here and preparing for this worship. There's been a lot of obstacles to, to coming to um, this point of worship, and I don't think that it was just a power issue or technical issues, but there were also spiritual issues. Um, there was opposition um, to God's people coming together and singing praises because praises are powerful, and our worship is war. And so there was opposition, and yet um, I was so encouraged to worship with you um, here and at home because the Lord is victorious. And today, um, I, I'm also excited because we're starting a whole new sermon series today on the book of Revelation, and today's the first one. And uh, we're opening up this book for the very first time, and so if you have your Bibles at home, uh, please open up uh, to the very, very last book of your Bible. It's easy to find because it's at the way end. And at the end of your Bible, uh, we're going to open up to the first chapter of the revelation um, of Jesus Christ. And so here, um, now the Word of God, as I read it to you, I'm just going to read down to, uh, to verse 18 for you. And so here's the introduction to this book that we're going to open together. It says this, <clears throat> the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he's coming. He's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands... One like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his, hair, ha hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice, his voice was like uh, the roar of many waters. 
In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face, his face was like, like the shining sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys. I have the keys of death and of Hades. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, It's an amazing uh, word as we start this book of Revelation, and I'm excited to start it with you. One of the reasons that we are starting it at this point is because if you have been with us for a little bit, you know that last year we went through the book of Daniel. And the book of Daniel actually gives us a lot of tools to help us to understand Revelation. And I think it's important for us to understand Revelation um, as Christians because a lot of us don't. And, And many of us have either tried or have not tried because it's probably the most intimidating book of the New Testament for us, right? Um, And for others of us, it's not just intimidating. Some of us have told me that when um, you were young, the book of Revelation not only intimidated you, it outright scared you when you were a a young kid or a younger Christian. Um, And it's understandable. Even uh, John Calvin, this is the only book that he didn't write a commentary on. It is an intimidating book for us, um, but I want to show you today as we open up this book that there's no reason for us to be scared. In fact, I want to show you that this book was actually given to people who are scared so that they wouldn't be scared and so they wouldn't be intimidated living in a world that made them scared. The point of the book of Revelation is to help us to persevere, persevere, and uh, that's something I want to rediscover As we go through the book of Revelation, perseverance and endurance, patient endurance in the faith. I don't know if that's something that you've thought about, but that's something that we need to learn in this time and the time that's coming. And some of you feel the shift in the times. You feel the shift of how Christians are perceived in this world. And I want to tell you that it's it's exactly in a time like this that the book of Revelation is given so that we can persevere as we look at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so today I just want to introduce it to you and show you this first chapter. And I'm going to introduce it to you uh, with these three points, these three questions. Why was it written? Why was Revelation written? Secondly, what does it say? And thirdly, why do I need it? Why was it written? What does it say? Why do I need it? And I think by looking at these things, we'll begin to understand why this precious book was given to us. And my hope is that not only will you understand Revelation in the next few months, but that you'll learn to grow to love the book of Revelation. I know that sounds a little bit unbelievable for some of you, but I hope that God shows you why he gave this precious letter to you. Will you bow your heads with me and pray as we begin this sermon? Father, there's an urgency um, in my heart right now as we open up this book Um, because there's a part of me that feels like this book is urgently needed, Um, especially after this week. I feel that we urgently need to open up this book, understand the book, and receive it. And so, Father, I pray for Mosaic, and I pray for those who are um, worshiping with us and visiting and have no idea who Jesus Christ is. I pray that this would be a revelation to us. And so, Father, send your spirit to us as we look at it. You speak. And you say what you need to say to us, to a people confused. So please come and help us. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. So why was it written? Um, Why is the book of Revelation given to us, and why was it written? To give you the short answer, I want to tell you that the book of Revelation was written to us because Christians are oftentimes misunderstood, and Christians are oftentimes blamed, and Christians are oftentimes, they're under great persecution, undergoing great hardship. And so the book of Revelation is given to us. But it's not just a book of revelations, but it's a specific revelation. And let me read verse 1 to to 2 with you one more time, and you'll see that it's not just a bunch of revelations that are given to the church in this book, but it's a specific revelation that is given to us. Read verse 1 and 2 with me again. It says this, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That should tell you right there, at the beginning of the book, what this is. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show his servants. You're going to see that again and again. I'm showing you revelation to show the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. This is a revelation, a showing of Jesus Christ. That's what we need to understand about the book, that it's a showing, a revelation of Jesus Christ. And those of you who are with us during the Daniel series, you have a little bit of an advantage because you understand why a vision of God or a vision of Jesus Christ is so powerful. Last year, we went through the book of Daniel, and we saw that those people who were receiving those visions from Daniel were living in a time where they were greatly oppressed. They were in Babylon, and they had nothing really, as they look around their world, that gave them hope. They watched the news, and the news made them freak out. They looked at everything that was around them, and it made them scared and hopeless. And so the book of Daniel is given to those kind of people who are living in Babylon, kidnapped, captured out of their home, and put into a place that's very, very scary, and everything around them looks scary. And so what does God do in the book of Daniel? He tears open the curtain of heaven, and he says, you can't see anything hopeful in your life? Then let me show you something hopeful. Take a look at me. And in the book of Daniel, we saw that God gave visions of hope in the midst of people who are living in the fire. The book of Revelation is very, very similar. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ given to a people who direly need it in a time where they're being pressed down, in a time that's very, very scary. Now, as we open up this book, we have to ask, who are these people and why are they scared? The people that the book of Revelation are given to are given after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, people of the early church in the A.D. 60s. This is a scary time for the Christians because it's not Nebuchadnezzar who's in power, but there's a new evil, twisted, savage man who is in charge of Rome, and this man's name is Nero, Emperor Nero. And he is a really twisted person. And I don't say that lightly. He was a paranoid person. He was a person driven by fear and anger. Um, He had his, out of paranoia, he was paranoid. And so he had his mother stabbed to death. He actually had his wife beheaded. And then the mistress that he gets pregnant after he kills his own wife, when a pregnant woman He kicked her to death. This is a savage, terrible, twisted person. And he's in charge of an empire. Now the question is, why did he turn his attention to the Christians? 
Um, why did he begin to persecute the Christians? Now, there are a lot of reasons, but one reason in particular. In the summer of 64 AD, there was a big fire that burned through Rome. It burned through a lot of Rome, and society, as they knew it, Rome was mad at Nero. They thought and they knew that it was Nero's fault. But Nero found a scapegoat group of people that he could blame so that he could deflect the blame off of him. And he said that it wasn't me who caused these fires. It wasn't because of me, but it's these Christians in our culture. They started the fires. They're the ones responsible for you losing your home. They're the ones for you responsible losing your spouse. The Christians, they're the ones that did it. They were an easy target because they were a small group of powerless people who were misunderstood in that society. They were very misunderstood. You know, in that time, people, there were letters that we still have around. People thought that Christians were cannibals. And that sounds so weird. Why would they think that we're cannibals? But they thought that Christians were cannibals because they said that we eat the body of Jesus and we drink the blood of Jesus. And so there are these letters going around saying that these Christians, they're cannibals. Not only are they cannibals, these Christians, they are incestuous people. And they say, where did they get that from? They're incestuous people because they, they call each other brother and sister. They say, oh, my brother, oh, my sister. And then they marry one another. There were, it, it, it's just mind-blowing how misunderstood Christians were in that day. They were deeply misunderstood people. And so they were an easy target for the empire. Nero said, they're the ones that started the fire, not me. And so persecution started to grow toward the Christians. Now, one thing we have to understand about ancient times is that people aren't per- the Christians weren't persecuted constantly all the time. You know why? Because persecution is expensive. You have to spend money to persecute people, to mobilize people, to mobilize soldiers, to do all this stuff. And, you know, pe- Christians weren't constantly persecuted, but when they were persecuted... It was fiery and intense. Nero starts to go after the Christians, and he begins to burn them alive in his garden. He begins to throw them into the Colosseum with lions. There's this really savage account of Nero setting Christians on fire on the streets, on crosses. And as they're screaming out in pain and agony, Nero going up to them and saying and mocking them to their face, Oh, look, you are the light of the world. He's just a savage man, a terrible, evil, twisted individual. That's what the Christians are enduring in the time that revelation is given to them. Don't you see? They need something. They need help. There are people screaming out, wailing on account of Jesus Christ. There are those who are suffering for Christ's sake. And John himself, who receives the revelation, he says, I'm a partner with you. I'm right there with you in this. Read verse 9 with me again. This is what it says. I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John says, I am your partner in the tribulation. And the reason he's saying that is because he himself is also enduring tribulation. He himself is enduring persecution because the reason that he's on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God is not because he's there on a short-term missions trip preaching the word of God. It means that he was sent there for preaching the word of God. 
You see, the island of Patmos was an exile community. It's where people sent out people that they didn't want in their community, and they used it as an exile island. And so John, for proclaiming Jesus Christ, was sent to the island of Patmos as an exile. And it's on that island that he receives this revelation, and he says, I'm also with you, brothers and sisters of the seven churches. I'm with you in this tribulation. I'm also misunderstood. I'm also blamed. I'm also persecuted just like you. I get it. And it was on this island that he receives this revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Now before I get into the revelation, I think that there's something that we need to point out and to pull out from this. When you look at the New Testament, it's very, very clear that Christians are defined by our definition as people who suffer for Christ's sake. That is who we are in the New Testament. When you look at the Bible, it is very clear that we are defined as people who suffer for Jesus' sake. That is our DNA. You know, we have such a hard time witnessing, don't we? We have such a hard time witnessing. And I think one of the reasons we have such a hard time witnessing is not because we have a lack of converts or we're frustrated that people aren't actually coming to Christ and we don't know what to say. I think the greatest hardship with why you don't witness is because we don't want to suffer. It's because we don't want to suffer. One of the reasons that we don't witness is because we're trying to strike that balance where we don't suffer and we witness at the same time. Where we want to be a proclaiming witness of Jesus Christ, but at the same time, we don't want to suffer. And in the meanwhile, while we're trying to strike that balance, we're silent. And we don't witness. If we're honest, that's really the core reason why we have such a difficult time being a witness of Jesus Christ in this world. Because we are trying to invent something that doesn't exist in the New Testament. Someone who proclaims and witnesses to the person of Jesus Christ and is totally safe at the same time. We are trying to invent something that's not in the Bible. You see, when you look at the word martyr, it's a big theme in the book of Revelation. And we're going to learn about what martyrdom is in the book of Revelation. We're going to see it again and again. But if you look at the etymology and the, the history of the word, it's fascinating. Because the word martyr is a Greek word that originally started to mean witness. Someone who went to court and said, this is what I saw. You know, this is what I saw. And, um, you know, I want to help out the court case. This is what I saw. I'm a witness. But it began to transform. Because what happened in Greek history is they began to see Christians proclaiming, witnessing about Jesus Christ. And invariably and inevitably, they were killed. And they suffered. And they were exiled, and they were beaten, and things were taken away from them. And so the word martyr started to transform from meaning just witness to someone who dies while they witness. You see, that was new. And the word martyr began to change. Why? Because when Christians started to do it, everyone saw that they suffered for the sake of witnessing. But then what happens after that? The word martyr begins to continue to transform to mean somebody who suffers, but the concept of witnessing is actually divided from it. So you could be a martyr. Yeah, we say to each other, ah, oh, don't be such a martyr. Right? 
And it means just someone who suffers, and it has nothing to do with witness. The thing that it originally meant. But when you look at how that word changed, you see that what it means to be Christian, what it means to proclaim and witness to Jesus Christ is to suffer for his sake. That's core to who we are. Now, I wonder sometimes how we got so far away from that. And I wonder in the West, in the Western church, I wonder it's because we took a business model to church. We took a business model to church. And we began to see our church members and the people who attended our church not as martyr witnesses for Jesus Christ, but as customers and as clients. And we began a full press into client services, customer services, saying, just come to our church and everything will be provided for you. Come to our church and you will find community without cost. Come to our church and you will get all of these benefits of belonging to our church. Even think about the way that we search for community. We shop for community. I just, think about what I just said, shop for community. It just, I imagine it breaks the heart of Jesus Christ. And sometimes I ask myself, have I done this? Am I complicit as a Western church pastor? What have we done? If we've lost the understanding that to be Christian means to suffer for Christ, then a lot of things will go bad. I think, I think we saw it this week. I think we saw it on Capitol Hill this week. What happened on Capitol Hill this week was a dark day for our country, and it was a dark day for democracy, and it was a dark day for our nation. It was a shameful day for our nation, but I think it was a day of particular shame for Christians. And the reason for that is because I think that Christians saw those who were on Capitol Hill with signs that said Jesus saves, began to erect crosses, and we Christians partook in a particular shame of being associated with those who would act out in violence. I can say that because I felt ashamed. I felt ashamed for what they were doing. But before I I really say what I want to say about that, I want to say, my brothers and sisters, well, you know what? Being misunderstood is normal for the church of Jesus Christ. I know you feel misunderstood because there's a part of you that says, but that's not me. Don't think that I'm like them. Don't think that our church is like them. When you have that feeling, this shouldn't have happened. But... I also want to tell you that you are also in line with a long history of Christians who felt misunderstood, called cannibals and incestuous because you follow Christ. I understand the shame, but I also want to tell you that many brothers and sisters have experienced that before you in church history. But what I really want to say is that to act out in violence for the name of Christ is not what a Christian does. Don't you see what we see in the book of Revelation and the New Testament? To be Christian means to suffer for the sake of Christ. It does not mean to create and cause suffering to others 
for the sake of Christ. Isn't that what we see in Jesus Christ? He stands before Pilate because all the Jewish people carry him to that, to Pilate before his throne, and they have him in handcuffs, and they say what? He is causing an insurrection. He is causing an insurrection. How many times have you heard that word this week? He's an insurrectionist, like Barabbas. And so you see Jesus Christ before Pilate, and Pilate asks him, Look, your own chief priests and your own people brought you to me. I don't understand what's going on. Are you like Barabbas? Are you an insurrectionist like Barabbas? Are you planning on violence against the state? Is that what you're doing, Jesus? And what is Jesus' response? He says, my kingdom is not of this world. He says this, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were... My servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now, my kingdom is of another place. When he says my servants, he's not talking about his disciples. He's talking about his angels. You see what he's saying? He says, Pilate, if I was an insurrectionist, my angels would come down from heaven and you would not stand a chance against me. If I was looking to overthrow the state... You would not have a chance, trust me. But that's not what I'm here for. I'm here for suffering for the sake of sinners. My kingdom is not like that world. That's why I told my servant Peter to put his sword away. I'm here to suffer for the sake of others. When you look at what happened this week, you see such a disconnect. You see such a disconnect to who Jesus was and what he was about. I'm not condemning their interpretation of what the election process was. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about their interpretation of what went wrong. I'm talking about the violence that took place supposedly in the name of Jesus Christ. It's not the name of Christ. Christ has not called us to attack civilians for the sake of Christ. It doesn't matter who has called you to do that. That is wrong. To incite violence and to hurt civilians for your political agenda, that is wrong. No matter who called you to it, whether his name is Trump or whether his name is Biden, or whether he's your pastor, whether he's a priest, whether his name is Dave, whoever calls you to it, to attack civilians for your political cause, that is not the cause of Christ. Jesus is in chains, don't you see him, before Pilate. You see, brothers and sisters, when we are misunderstood, and when persecution comes, and when difficulty comes, and you feel uncomfortable in this world, the book of Revelation is important for us to receive because the first thing that needs to take place is not to clear up the misunderstanding. And I know that that was the initial reaction of many Christians. No, 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 that's not us. Don't think that I'm like that. The first thing that needs to take place is not for you to clear up the misunderstanding. The thing that is most urgent for you in your heart to receive is you need to persevere. You need to persevere in faithfulness. That's the first thing that you need. And in order for you to persevere 
and not give in to compromise and temptation, you need to see a vision of Jesus Christ. You need a conviction of who he is so that you have a conviction in your heart that he is worth suffering for. That he is worth suffering for. You see, that's what the book of Revelation is. The book of Revelation is Jesus showing himself to a church that is suffering and saying, look at me, church, and keep going. Persevere. Do not compromise or give up. I want to show you a vision of who I am. And as I close up, I want to just show you what he shows the church in verses 10 to 18. Let me just start at verse 12, actually. This is what Revelation shows. What does it say? In verse 12, it says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. You know, Revelation is really different from Paul. When you read Colossians 1, Paul explains to you what Jesus is like for you. Right? Colossians 1, read this. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created and in heaven and on earth. Paul wants to give you an explanation of what Jesus is like. John is not doing that. John is not giving you an explanation of what Jesus looks like. He's giving you the feeling of being next to Jesus. He's giving you the sense of being with Jesus. He's not trying to explain to you who he is. He's trying to give you a feeling of what it's like when Jesus stands next to you. You see, he says, when I turned around, I saw seven lampstands and Jesus standing next to the lampstands. We're going to get into the symbolism soon, but the lampstands represent the church and all the churches Seven churches, meaning all of the church, the complete church. What John sees is Jesus standing next to the churches, standing with the churches as they're being persecuted and misunderstood in this world. When I turned around, I saw that Jesus was standing next to us. And he's standing with us. You see, John is trying to get across to you the feeling of Jesus being with you. Revelation is not a letter from your dad. It's what it feels like to be with your dad. Do you understand the difference? That's what people being burned on the street need. They don't only need an exposition of the understanding of who Jesus Christ is and his identity. They need the feeling that he's with them. And that's what Revelation is. John doesn't say like Paul says, he is from before all creation. John says his hair was white. He doesn't say that he is authority over all creation. John says his eyes were on fire. He's trying to give you a sense of a mighty, powerful Jesus, the Son of Man, standing with you in whatever you're feeling right now. Do you hear it? And do you feel it? The sense that he is with you. He's saying to you, I am with you. Do you feel me here now? Now, finally, why do we need it? Why do we need the book of Revelation? Why do we need that message so badly? We need it badly because you're looking for it in all the wrong places. 
You're looking for the sense that Jesus is with you in the midst of all that's going on. You're looking for him in all the wrong places. You know, it's not a bad thing to look for God in your life experience. Right? To look for proof that God is with me. I, I, I want to feel proof that God is for me and look in your life experience, your everyday experience for God. It's not a bad thing, but if that's all you're doing, those experiences, the evidence and proof, isn't it for you like it is for me, sometimes far and few between? Isn't it sometimes hard to find evidence that you, you know, looking in your life, in your everyday experience, isn't it hard to find that sense that he is with you if you're just looking at what you are living through? You know, the movie Incredibles, I think um, one of the great scenes is when um, some of you guys saw Mr. The Incredibles, and uh, it's the classic superhero thing. He's supposed to hide his identity, Mr. Incredible. And yet there's a scene where he's so angry that he goes out to his car and he picks up his car in anger and he doesn't realize that there's a little kid on a tricycle looking at him. And he's just staring at him with his jaw open and Mr. Incredible catches himself because he's not supposed to show his superpowers. And he drops the car and he just goes to work. But then the next day, Mr. Incredible comes back out to his car and he finds that little kid on the trike waiting there for him. And Mr. Incredible says, what are you waiting for, kid? What do you want? And the kid says, what am I waiting for? Something amazing, I guess. I'm waiting to see something incredible, I guess. And isn't that what you're like? You're waiting to see something incredible in your life. God, show me something. Give me an experience of your love. Give me an experience of something. Show me that you're with me and you're mighty and powerful. What am I waiting for? I'm waiting for something amazing, I guess. When are you going to show me? And God says, I already sent it to you. It's in the back of your Bible. I revealed it to you in my word where you will find a solid standing and the message that I'm with you and for you. You never read it? It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. I gave it to you in your Bibles. And in that word, I prove to you and I show you that I am for you. That you don't need to be scared and you don't need to go take your life in your own hands and go look for vengeance because my eyes are on fire. My eyes are on fire in vengeance for you. Vengeance is mine. You don't have to go take your life in your own hands. I am with you, and I have given you this incredible glimpse of who I am and to prove to you that I am with you. Why do we need the book of Revelation? It's because we've been looking for it all our lives, <laughs> just in the wrong places. When it was there all along, Jesus Christ showing himself to us, saying, I am mighty and here. He says, I have the keys to death and Hades. That's the last thing I'll talk about before I close. The keys to death and Hades. What does that mean? It means that I have the keys and control over everything scary in your life. Everything uncertain and scary. Why death and Hades? Is that the same thing? No. Death is death the way that you understand it but I also have the, the keys to Hades that dark hazy place the dark alleys of your life the things where you're not exactly sure or certain of what's going to happen the stuff that makes you not sleep 
I have the keys to your Hades. You don't need to fear. You don't need to fear. I am with you. As you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I am with you. I promise. I promise, he says to you. I'm there with you on that operating table. I'm there with you in that uncertainty. I'm there with you in your divorce. I'm there with you in your Hades. And because I have the keys, my son, my daughter, I'll walk you through it. I am here as you suffer. To be a Christian means you will suffer for his sake. But as you do, I pray that you receive the revelation of Jesus Christ. You need him to be close to you, and you need to not only look in your life experience for it, he proves it to you in his word, and he's given it to you so you could go to it every day. Let's go to him in prayer together because we have some things to pray about. And um, I'm going to invite the worship team up as we close in a time of prayer. But first, my brother, my sister, as, as these truths are laid upon you and as we open up this revelation of Jesus, let's come to him. And I want you to think about all the Hades in your life. All the things that make you uneasy right now. Don't leave it at the door and come into church. Bring it with you. Bring it with you to the throne. And at this time, I actually want you to think about those things. Think about all those things that give you the deep anxiety. Think about all those things that give you the deep sense of uncertainty. Think about those things that make you really uncomfortable. And as you think about those things, receive the revelation of Jesus Christ. Even just in the first chapter, as you hold on to all those things of suffering, Hades, and death, he says to you, Behold, I'm coming with the clouds, and every eye will see, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Your enemies will see him, Everyone is going to see him. Just wait for me. Behold, I'm coming for you. He says, I am the Alpha and Omega, who is and was and who is to come. I was there before the bad things happened to you. I'm there with you now as they are happening to you. I'll be with you for the next bad things. I'm the Alpha and Omega. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. So fear not. He says, fear not. I am the first and the last. And the living one, I have the keys of death and Hades. Though kingdoms may fall, and though capital buildings may be attacked, and nations may rise and fall, and your family members may get coronavirus, you may experience heartbreak in your life. I'm the first and the last. I'm the alpha. I'm the omega. I'm right here, and I'm not going anywhere. Do you feel him with you? As we begin this quick time of prayer, let, let's pray for ourselves, and let's come, and let's say, Lord, I repent because I thought you were far away. 
But as I open up the book of Revelation, I realize you are next to me. You stand in my midst. Let's pray and come to him in a time of confession, prayer, and receive Jesus in our lives. this time, Mosaic, let's pray for our nation. Can we pray for our nation? Um, it just, it feels like every month that goes by, there's something new that divides us. There's something new that creates a greater rift between us. And let's pray that the Lord would begin to reverse the tide and bring unity to our, our nation and to bring peace to our nation and that there will be rebuilders and that there will be bridge builders and that he would send people into the harvest field of our nation that would bring unity and peace. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. It doesn't matter which side of the political aisle that you're on. If there are swords in your heart and that's all you feel in this time, Lord is now moving you towards unity. You may feel a righteous anger, but you will also experience righteous judgments. Can we pray, Lord, will you send peace? This is not your way. If it was, this will be over by now, but it's not. Can we pray for the healing of our nation? Can we pray that the Lord would bring shalom to our nation because we could use some of it? Let's, as Christians, do our job, do what we have been called to do, and to be peacemakers through prayer for our nation. Let's pray uh, for our country, and let's intercede for it.
Father, as your church, we come before you and we want to always first repent of what was in our hearts. And repent if we were trying to invent a new way of doing Christianity because we have decided in our hearts not to suffer for your sake. Forgive us, God. We're sorry. We just, maybe we didn't understand or Maybe just deep down, we just really didn't want to be misunderstood. We didn't want to be blamed. We didn't want to suffer. Forgive us that we try to create a kind of Christianity that was devoid of suffering. When you said in this world, you will have persecution. If they said that I was Beelzebub, if they said that I was Satan, what do you think they're going to say of you? How deeply do you think you will be misunderstood? Father, we forgot all those things that you said to us. We just, we just pray for your grace. Help us to persevere in a world that's not our own. And our kids, our kids are going to grow up in a, in a nation that is, they're going to be even more alien than us. And so, Father, we pray for perseverance among your saints. We pray for saints who bleed. We pray for saints who hurt. But, Father, we pray for perseverance. We pray that you would help us to have a vision of Jesus that tells us that, you know what, this, he is worthy. He is worthy of our suffering. He is worthy to persevere for, that he is worthy of it all. So, Father, all your saints and even your angels, we bow before your throne. And all the elders, we don't act in arrogance or power, but we cast down our crowns before you, the Lamb of God. And we say, you are worthy. You are big and you are mighty and you are in our midst. So, Father, show yourself to us and strengthen us so that we can keep living in this world and be faithful. I pray for Mosaic as we begin this new year that you would give them conviction to keep going. Help them not to be battered down, but I pray that through these worship services that they would see again the mighty power and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.